Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Basser Hour. The Basser Hour is an in-depth look at things affecting today's veteran. The Basser Hour is sponsored by www.hadit.com. If you need help with the VA, log on to hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Jay Basser. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Basser Hour. Today is a beautiful 19th of December, 2019, one week away from Christmas. I have my co-host today, Mr. Jerry Cook. Our guest speakers today are the one and only Dr. Pye. I hope you guys enjoyed the show today. We're going to talk about ridiculous things. So uh, let's get it all started. Gerald, how you doing today? Doing pretty good, thank you. Oh, you want to give out a call-in number? Yeah, we can do that. Uh, folks, if you listen to the show and want to call in and speak to any, any one of the staff, Dr. Bash or Bill, uh, area code is 347-237-4819. Again, area code 347-237-4819. Just hit option one. It'll put you right in the queue, and we'll pick you up from there. So, how you doing, Dr. Bash? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So um, a couple weeks ago, I had a patient went to a higher-level review, and uh, uh-huh. the patient had me call in on, call in on the phone call, and uh, then the uh, DRO said that was the first time he had a doctor on the line. But what was good is he asked me questions, and then he granted the case a week later. So that. DRO higher level review process with uh, with experts on the line might be a good way to get the cases resolved. You know, uh, that's good. You hear a lot of good and a lot of bad about the higher level. You know, takes away your avenue for you know submitting new evidence. But situations like that, I guess it worked out. So you know, we always yeah, hope sometimes that, uh, that happens. Yeah, Bill Bill's been teaching teaching us about the laws, right, Bill? And so in some of our opinions now, we're putting some of those laws in there. So when you go to higher-level review, then you have something to talk about with the law part. Is that right, Bill? Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's, that's why Dr. Bash and I are teamed up, because of my knowledge of what the rating schedule requires, what the manual tells the employee to do, and how to determine service connection, how to evaluate a disability. Um, what I do for Dr. Bash is to make sure he knows the criteria and how these things are interpreted. Then when his opinion and review reaches the decision review officer, there's an outline of just exactly what the veteran wants, why he wants it, what the medicine is that supports it and what the manual, the regulation, the court case law says for him to do. So if they want to, they can just run right down Dr. Bash's opinion, follow it, and agree, and be done. But if they want to check something, look it up, well, there's the references. <laughs> you know, so that, you know, I help them find it, you know, so... <laughs> That's, uh, that's perfect. That's perfect for the higher level review because. Uh, yeah, yeah, but remember now, yeah. um, my my question is now, the manual says 
that if you elect higher level review and then you submit additional evidence, take it out of the higher level review and instead assign it as a supplemental claim. So you, to me, that means you lose your place in line. Now, what I like about what Dr. Bash did to engage in that phone call, okay, he is actually providing testimony that will give the DRO additional evidence without it being kicked out. And that's that's a brilliant, brilliant move, Dr. Bash. (laughs) Uh, Well, sometimes I fall into these things, you know. <laughs> he asked a couple of questions about how I wrote my opinion and whether I thought it was aggravation or direct service connection and things like that. And then he just went ahead and decided it. You know? uh, so in this case, you had already written an opinion that was part of the record. Yeah. Right. And then it went into higher level review with the evidence already on hand. That's for clarification and things like that. Yeah. There's an example really, yeah. of how to do the higher level review perfectly. Excellent. Excellent. Way to go. <laughs> well, it's important, it's important for you to see me the, the law part because if you go there with just the medicine to the higher level review, then it's not, you, know, you can't review the, law, the medicine as much as you can the legal parts of it. So it's interesting. You have to have a nicely prepared nexus letter to be able to make that process work and that's the teamwork right now. Yes, and, and of course, you know, recall what I what I referred to as the um, difference between the practice of medicine and VA's adjudication medicine. They're not exactly the same. Um, terms have different meanings to the adjudicators, like raters and decision review officers, than they do to medical professionals. Um, and of course. Terms change over time. Medical terminology evolves with time. VA does from time to time amend the rating schedule to bring the terms found in VA's rating schedule uh, more uh, in concert with current terminology. Um, So, but that, that always lags. There's always a lag between what the medical world is doing and what the VA adjudicators are using in the way of medical terms. I mean, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, years ago when I was um, practicing as a representative, the rating schedule still contained the term dementia precox. Okay. <laughs> now, <laughs> Need I tell anybody that that term is no longer used? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. that, right. that was that was a very old term for schizophrenia. <laughs> so it, it's mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and sometimes a reader might read something and take a lay interpretation of what those words mean and fail to comprehend what the medical terminology is and what its implication is on the case. Because remember, decision review officers, raters, they get some rudimentary uh, courses 
on some medical terminologies and medical and um, anatomical systems, uh, but they're not medically trained. Um, and um, so, you know, VA doesn't emphasize that. Instead, they teach raters uh, some basic courses about here's some of the terminologies and here's some of the functionality, um, but they're ordered to defer to the medical evidence, not their own understanding. So, Bill, we have a new term that just floated out there, this thing called somatic pain syndrome, you know, something that, they, that mm-hmm. some reader told me about. And then we have that law, that law that talks about pain from an unknown cause. Are those two things kind of the same? Are they talking about the same thing there, or are they doing something different with those ideas? Um, no. Well, you know, back in the day, if they were, if if the um, report said they, a condition uh, was psychosomatic, okay, that was the term that used to be used. Um, the raiders would interpret that as malingering. <laughs> they didn't understand mm-hmm. that it was a an acquired mental disorder. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, and there, there was a. I, I actually solicited the help of um, the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, chief of psychological services uh, to um, intervene in the case. Uh, I, I'd, I'd done some business with him and. And we had a, a working relationship. And the case was before me where they had, the regional office had sent uh, a case for his review, and he had opined. And uh, they denied, based on his opinion, got to the Board of Veterans' Appeals, where I was representing the appeal. And I looked at it, and I said, I, I don't think they understand what he said. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I called him up and asked him for an amendment myself. And uh, fortunately, he was gracious enough to do it <laughs> so they could understand. They, the, the terminology that he used, they interpreted to mean that it was a, a defect, that it was a personality defect uh, and not a disability under the law. And that's not at all what, what the words meant. So his clarification of the word and the and the diagnosis was enough to demonstrate that the uh, mental disorder actually began during active duty and not before. And so the case was granted by the Board of Veterans Appeals. And it was um, it was just an example of, of the words. Um, I recall a POW and. Uh, Try to think of the exact term. It was some time ago now, but uh, um, paresthesias. He had paresthesias of his hands, and he was claiming frostbite, okay? And and he's a Korean War combat veteran. And that's that's not a stretch there, is it, you know? The The doctor wrote, the VA examiner wrote, paresthesias of hands, um, history of frostbite. Okay, well, I know what that means, okay? He's got frostbit hands from the Korean War, and that's leaving him with burning and numbness and tingling and pain, okay, uh, of the hands. Mm-hmm. Well, the raider denied it. And I walked upstairs, and I asked the guy, you know, uh, uh, I'm not sure I understand why he denied it. He says, well, the doctor didn't say he had frostbite. He said he had a history of frostbite. 
I said, what about Parasthesius? He said, well, he could have spots on his hand from anywhere. Oh, I said, oh, I, I understand. You think Parasthesius mm-hmm. means spots? Okay. I'll be back in a little while. <laughs> so I went downstairs to the examiner, and I said, hi, got a problem with your exam. Can you help me out? And, you know, we were all kind of friends back in those days. And, uh, and sure, Bill, what do you need? And I said, well, um, the reader doesn't understand your terminology. Um, do you actually mean to say that he has residuals of frostbite now manifesting as paresthesias, numbness, tingling, et cetera? And he says, yeah. I said, okay. Could you just note that on here for me, please, <laughs> and put your initials next to it? So he did. Walked it back upstairs. I said, here you go. Those aren't spots. Those are neurological symptoms, okay? <laughs> and he went ahead and granted it then. <laughs> you know, he can get spots on his hand from anywhere. Ah, okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll help you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so that, that's what that law, that's what that law is trying to get around, right, Bill, that whatever, Wilkie versus Saunders, where they talk about if you can't diagnose the pain the veteran is experiencing, but it could be related to an event, then they can grant it that way. That's kind of trying to get around. Oh, kind of well, yes, early, right. early in the court's jurisprudence, the court decided that pain in and of itself would not a rateable service-connectable disability, okay, that there had to be some underlying diagnosis to explain the symptom of pain. And the courts have reversed that now. And, um, you know, pain is a rateable manifestation in and of itself. And the manual has been revised to uh, make sure everybody understands that. So we we shouldn't see that problem coming up. Well, (laughs) I was about Uh to say we shouldn't see that problem coming up anymore, but uh, it depends right. on the training of the of the raider involved. No, so, no, you know, no, it, no. it. And I kind of imagine now how enormous VA is. The numbers, you know, thousands and thousands of employees all over the country, and trying to get this entire rafter of employees on the same page is is extraordinarily challenging. You know, it's, it's just uh, it's just hard to get everybody to have a clear understanding particularly in this environment where now the compensation service has been revising rules willy-nilly at an at a, uh, unbelievable pace. I mean, you, you know, it used to take months for a rule change. And, and uh, my golly, I, I remember seeing in recent years multiple substantive rule changes per week. <laughs> You're trying to mm-hmm. absorb all these changes all at once. So, you know, I, I, from my experience, I can sympathize with those employees um, for trying to, the, the challenges of keeping up with all the rule changes. Um, but nonetheless, um, I was capable of pr- pr- producing decisions that well in excess of the required level um, and still, um, you know, take time to read the rule changes and review and look for rule changes, uh, you know, uh, on a daily basis regularly. So, you know, so I'm sympathetic, but I, I uh, challenge the employees and say, hey, you, you've got to keep pace. And that's your job, you know. It's kind of like, kind of like if you want to be a Marine, you're going to run three miles in 28 minutes or you're not a Marine, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
the, um, the rules for CPT coding, I guess, think they had about 500 new changes this year for the doctors and, you know, civilian sector. So these rule changes are happening all the time in different places. So it's part of the I'm job. sure. I'm, it's, yeah, I'm sure it's not unique to VA. Mm -hmm. um, hey, Bill, uh, Jay had a question about radiculopathy, Jay, about your shoulder, right? You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, now, um, a radiculopathy it's, it itself, that diagnosis, is not mm -hmm. a disability of the shoulder. It's a disability right. of the neck. And I want everybody to understand mm -hmm. that when we say radiculopathy, um, think of the spinal column, mm -hmm. and you have um, a stack of checkers, and that's your vertebrae. And you right. have pads in between the checkers, and that's your discs, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like, think of it as a very hard jello. <laughs> Some flexibility, <laughs> not too much. And think of all these ligaments and uh, paraspinous muscles and all of those attachments as kind of like rubber bands holding this all together and steady. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, with aging and or trauma, those discs can start having problems. And at, with natural aging, those discs are going to begin to narrow and the space between the vertebrae is going to narrow. Now, you have the spinal cord in the middle that runs north and south. Mm -hmm. coming out sideways at the same level where the, there are spaces between those hard discs. Between them, out comes the radicular nerves horizontally. And when the vertebrae compress those nerves or a disc herniates or bulges and squeezes on those nerves or nerve roots, that produces neurological symptoms in that nerve distribution. And so we call them radiculopathies because they are disabilities of the radicular nerves coming out of the neck and the back. So that, right. that's some of the anatomy, basic anatomy. Now, when these manifestations start, the first thing you know, need to know is that that is an indication of a worsening of the condition of the spine. And the first problem that people cause now, and, and a lot of people used to do it, people say, I want service connection for radiculopathy. And that's mm -hmm. how they phrase their claim. The VA is supposed to understand, but not everybody's perfect, that that means a worsening of the spine. So if you have a 20% spine disorder and now you're presenting with symptoms of radiculopathy, that is a worsening of the spine. Now, why is that important? Okay, 3.402 in the regulations, that governs the effective date for increases in disability. So if your claim is for service connection, What's the effective date? The effective date is date VA receives the claim. But if your claim is for a worsening of the spine, now to include radiculopathy, the effective date is 
that day on which the radiculopathy presented symptoms if you filed your claim within one year of that day. So at the moment you develop symptoms of radiculopathy and you see someone for it and it's documented, okay, even if it's unsure what the diagnosis is but the symptoms are there, and you file a claim for radiculopathy and then you get your VA exam and then you're rated for radiculopathy, the date, the effective date goes back not to the date of claim, but to the date the radiculopathy first presented symptomatically mm-hmm. to a compensable degree. So that's why you phrase this as I want a claim for increase for my neck now to include radiculopathy. That started and give them the date. <laughs> I had this attack of radiculopathy April. <laughs> okay. Uh, give them the records that show that you sought care for it in maybe March or, or June. And in those records there, when you saw the doctor in June, the doctor asked you, when did this start? And you say, it started in April. Well, the correct effective date then is April. Okay? Right. So that's why it's important to characterize as a claim for increase is fine. Now, the, the regulations and the, manually, the manual, the M21, governs this and tells the reader just exactly what I told you. So there should not be a problem if there's a well-trained reader reviewing the case. Now, one of the diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, she was asking about his shoulder and maybe carpal tunnel is secondary to weakness. So keep going. We'll, we'll pass through that process. Okay. Now, once we've established that we have a radiculopathy and we have established that it's compensable, now we have to evaluate it. Well, the rating schedule, uh, let's see now, that would be at uh, 38 CFR 4.124A. I remember. <laughs> and and um, that describes, it provides for the evaluation of the neurological symptoms. And it also provides, I'm clicking to it as we go, specific evaluations for specific nerves under the peripheral uh, nerve section. And it does not include a description of manifestations um, associated with a particular evaluation. In other words, in other parts of the rating schedule, like when you're evaluating the the lumbar spine, uh, the rating schedule says if you can bend 61 degrees or more, it's 10%. If If it's between 31 and 60, it's 20%, okay? Well, the peripheral nerves rating schedule does not provide specific criteria. It only says you get an evaluation for mild, moderate, or severe 
impairment of the nerves. One exception to that is the sciatic nerve. The sciatic nerve also includes an evaluation for a moderately severe impairment, but only for the sciatic nerve. Now, the, the DBQ for peripheral nerves has check marks for the examiner to tick off to define which nerve is involved. Now, if we're talking, you know, the upper extremities, um, we're talking the fifth, sixth cervical nerves. Um, we're talking median nerve, ulnar nerve. Um, you know, so these nerves have a specific pathway, and you can look up the chart on online. You can you can just look up a chart that shows. You, know, you can just Google it or, or search it online, and it'll it'll show you. There'll be diagrams that'll say, okay, well, you know, at at oh L five S one in the lumbar spine, it runs down the back of your leg and then switches over to the inside of your leg and out your great toe. So you can see what that nerve distribution actually looks like. Uh, they're called dermatomes. You can actually see that uh, on a chart, and the DBQ is designed to solicit um, a check mark from the examiner that says exactly what nerve is affected and then the examiner is to check mild, moderate, or severe. Now, I said the regulation, okay, does not define mild, moderate, or severe. So what does VA do? VA created definitions and put it in the manual. So at M21, Part 3, Section 4, Number 4N4, um, that section describes the definitions VA intends to use for a mild moderate, moderately severe, or severe impairment of the nerves, peripheral nerves. Um, it also says that however slight, if the symptoms support the diagnosis, the minimum rating is mild. Okay? And in most nerves, mild is 10%. Right. Yeah. Um, I've got a quick question there, Bill. Sure. Let's say, say the veterans are service-connected for the left median neuropathy, left uh, and uh, left phrenic neuropathy, both on the same neck injury. The nerves that innervate the shoulder muscles and the muscles in the shoulder, the muscles mm-hmm. become weakened and they've atrophied to nothing. There's no, there's hardly any muscle left. Uh-huh. Then uh-huh. the ligaments and the rotator cuff and everything give away because there's nothing to attach to because it's disappearing. Would that be a secondary condition, or what would that do? Well, yes, it would. And okay. here is here is the here's the limiting factor because symptoms of the different diagnoses. So you have several a couple of things going on at least. You have 
you have a neurological impairment affecting the shoulder, which has mm-hmm. resulted in muscle disability. Mm-hmm. And as a result, now you get a joint disability as well. Okay? Wow. So there's and, – and some of this, you know, overlaps. Pain, weakness, limited range of motion. You know, it, it could be one or all of those things combining – to result in an impairment of the shoulder, okay? Now, VA's job is to ferret out which manifestations are affecting the shoulder and which aspect of it is the worst. That is, which is most disabling, which pays the greatest compensation, and then compensate the veteran for whichever is worse. When you have a muscle disability that is a result of a neurological impairment, you have to decide whether rating the nerves gives you the higher degree of compensation or rating the muscle gives you the highest degree of compensation because you can't separate and quantify how much of each. They're, they're, they're interrelated. You know, um, so so it's, it's not possible to figure out um, how much is each. So the the underlying rule is called pyramiding. Four point. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Pyramiding. So it says you you don't compensate a veteran twice for the same manifestations of disability under different diagnostic codes, and so. The, the job of the rater is to look at the various effects of the disability and compensate the veteran for that disability that pays them the most. Um, now, of course, anything that results in a painful shoulder, the minimum rating is 20%. Right. Okay? You, you, you can't, if you have anything related to the shoulder and it results in a shoulder impairment that's painful, the minimum rating is 20%. So, and, that, you know, back uh, a few years ago, uh, you saw a lot of people, okay, well, you've got an arthritis of the shoulder, and it's painful, so here's your 10%. And that was the interpretation for many, many years uh, until the court stepped in and explained to VA. And now it's in the manual. Uh, the manual says that if you have an impairment of the shoulder, the minimum rating is 20%. Right. Now, if a muscle, if you get, um, you know, again, muscles, muscles are more difficult to rate because of the complexity of the rating schedule. There are, and the rating schedule for muscles is basically, was basically created many, many generations ago uh, for wounds of the muscle. And so the definition of terms for severity of a muscle disability includes such terminology as through and through wound, okay? Um, uh, deep penetrating wound, okay? So some of the terms used in evaluating a muscle are not there <laughs> when, when you're evaluating a muscle that's, that's weakened by some other cause other than a wound, so that's that's yeah 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 and I guess um 
4.56 is where you find the, the criteria for rating muscles. Um, so it, it takes a lot of training and a lot of experience to be able to accurately relate muscles. And I got to tell you, uh, back, back in the day when I was representing cases, um, many of the successes that I and other reps had uh, for clear and unmistakable error were around wounds because they were so difficult to evaluate and the rating staff really didn't have a good fundamental understanding of how to do it. And so, uh, so there were, uh, you know, not a lot of them, but there were a significant number of CUE that were granted because of an error in evaluating muscle wounds. Um, big mistake, not identifying all the muscles that were hit. <laughs> that was a big one. Um, and not realizing uh, when you had a through-and-through through wound, there's a minimum rating that has to be applied, you know. So, and, and other um, of the more detailed uh, criteria that are found in that section. And so that, that, uh, that uh, was the old ratings for wounds were typically pretty vulnerable. Um, so we got to you got to um, have somebody skilled to do it. Uh, now, we were, we were about to um, get down into the manual's definition of how to define um, the severity of peripheral nerves. Right. And um, now we've started out by mentioning mild. And uh, as long as you have the diagnosis, um, then you're going to get at least a mild evaluation. And like we said, most of the peripheral nerves carry at least a 10% evaluation. Um, now, there's an interesting development in M21. VA has uh, initiated a requirement to get nerve testing. Um, and we're, we're interested uh, in this because not everybody can tolerate nerve testing. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, what, you know, basically VA, what, what are you going to do if you have a person that uh, cannot be subjected to nerve testing and um, your manual says that you can't be service connected unless you get it? Well, it's going to be an interesting conflict. And over time, somebody's going to have to bring that forward and uh, challenge it in, in order to get it done. But for now, they're saying they want to the nerve testing. So, Billy, um, uh, that's you know, nerve testing, Good, nerve that's testing is very operator-dependent operator and patient-dependent, like you said. And some books even talk mm -hmm. about it being like 50% inaccurate. So for those reasons, it's problematic. Yeah. Now, this, this, uh, this nerve That's testing, is, is that where they're sticking needles in you all over and taking readings? Yeah. That's a latency test. That's a latency test. They also have another test that uh, measures the speed and the reaction of your nerves with electric, electrical shock. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, it could be uh, nerve conduction, nerve conduction studies, production studies. Yeah. Yeah. or electromyogram. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
So that's also used down to get more get terrorists to talk. (laughs) 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 Oh my. Now, there is an exception. Okay, the the current, yeah, they're painful. The the current version of the manual says, okay, um, or, there's a magic word in there, or, the record contains sufficient clinical evidence to determine the extent of paralysis in the peripheral nerve. EMGs, you know, um, Bill, can you read that again? Okay. Okay, here we go. Electromyography. EMG results are required for evaluations of peripheral nerve disabilities unless there is a previous EMG test of record or big word or the record contains sufficient clinical evidence to determine the extent of paralysis in the peripheral nerve. Okay, so that um, gives us a little wiggle room. And it says other clinical findings that may be sufficient to document a peripheral nerve disability include sensation to light testing, deep tendon reflex, certain signs of the median nerve, trophic changes, gait testing, muscle strength testing, and, and you're going to love this one, Jay, the presence of muscle atrophy. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, so, you know, there is that or in there. All right? So, you know, if you get um, tonight on the premise you don't have a nerve study, you just need to point to this part of the manual and say, hey, it says or. <laughs> hey Bill, what's that? What's that manual? What's that manual? Uh, what's that manual citation? That, that part. All right. Uh, there we go. M twenty one one, part three. IV from numeral four, number four and four. Okay. Now, if if you just if you go into the VA's website and click on, you know the through the paces here, um, and search for the manual, okay, it, it won't be hard to find. And go to, you can actually it has a search device right on it, and you can just type in EMG and other tests for peripheral nerve conditions, and it'll go right to that paragraph. Um, but the um, manual, that portion of the manual that discusses the evaluation of disability is in part three, section four, okay? And, so, and then, then the subsections, you know, where it goes to three, four, five, et cetera, um, those are going to be for the different bodily systems that are provided for in the rating schedule. And then these provisions in the manual either interpret and apply the regulations, that being the rating schedule, 
or as it is in, in the case of um, some disabilities, it's actually expanding the rating schedule. It's what we call expanding the law. Now, you know, there's, there's a great debate, and there was a case some years back where a VA had changed the manual on the evaluation of um, hearing loss right in the middle of this guy's claim. As a result of the change in the manual saying, okay, well, you got a uh, disability, but under the new rules, you get less. So we're reducing you. Okay. Fugare was his name. And that case went up to the court. And the court agreed with Mr. Fugare's attorney that, no, you, you can't reduce an evaluation based on a change in rating criteria in the middle of a claim. Um, you can't reduce an evaluation without finding that the condition itself improved, not that you changed the rules, okay? And they also pointed out that um, the manual in that case provided a substantive rule. And, you know, because, you know, an employee manual, like an M21 or something, is, is binding on employees. It gives employees instructions on, on how to do, what tests to get, what, you know, evidence to develop, stuff like that, uh, that is just procedural. But in this case, the changing of a rule in the manual actually made a substantive dis- difference in this veteran's claim, in all veterans' claims. And by putting in the manual, they circumvented the Administrative Procedures Act, you know, that, and, and which VA is subject to, has been since the 1960s, um, which basically says you don't change the rules until after you share the proposed rule change with the public in the Federal Register. Give notice, accept comments, and then review the comments, and then promulgate your final rule change. Well, if you just stick it in a manual, you have violated the Administrative Procedures Act. And, and so that, at that time, the court found that it was not permissible. This was back in the 90s. But well, subsequently, in, in a series of decisions in the Fed Circuit, uh, the, the courts have kind of found that they will not act on VA's violation of the Administrative Procedures Act unless the appellant can show harm. Okay, so they've kind of like given a wink to VA and say, yeah, okay, we're going to let you get away with it, uh, but don't hurt anybody. Okay? <laughs> so, so um, I don't know. It, it, for for expedience purposes, for getting things, like if, if – um, you take uh, the revision for ALS. Uh, when, when ALS became a presumptive service-connected disability for any veteran whenever they get it, okay, um, VA started that with a letter, a speed letter. Out it went, boom, everybody do it. <laughs> so they didn't have a regulatory authority at the time. So you got to say to yourself, well, okay, well, that was important because, you know, ALS gets fatal really, really fast, and we've got to help these people really fast. And, and if you go through the Administrative Procedures Act, it might be a year or two, and, and we're going to lose a lot of vets in that year or two. So uh, in that sort of a circumstance, I can see 
um, taking it and finding a way to do some practical implementations without necessarily going through the Administrative Procedures Act. Hey, but on the hey, Bill, other how, hand, oh yeah. yeah? I'll, I'll keep going. Finish your sentence. Oh, okay. On the other hand, I wanted to point out that um, sometimes VA can stumble when they do this. Uh, VA, when it came now, now, the rating schedule provides separate evaluations for a meniscus disability, for arthritis, uh, range of motion, um, and then a separate disability for instability as well. Well, VA decided and put in the manual that they're not going to do that. Now, yeah, it's in the rating schedule, but we're not going to do it. We're, we're not going to pay a separate compensation of a meniscus disability together with any other disability than me. So they ordered everybody, you know, not to assign separate evaluations for any other disability if you're going to evaluate the meniscus. Or if you evaluate the other disabilities, don't assign a separate evaluation for the meniscus. Well, that was brought up to the court, and the court said, no, VA, you're wrong. <laughs> you can't do that. And so VA had to revise the manual and take it back out again. You know, so there are some checks and balances, but it takes years. You know, it takes years. Um, so that, that's, I guess, you know, I guess that's an understanding of how the rules sort of happen and why they find their way in the manual. Um, so what we have now is a uh, manual, and the manual defines mild, moderate, and severe, and in the case of the sciatic nerve, moderately severe. So what it's telling us is, okay, everybody gets a moderate to start with, okay? And it says that look for a disability limited to sensory deficits that are lower graded, less persistent, or affecting a small area. So like, for example, um, when my sciatic nerve flares up, okay, most of the time, you know, you kind of know it's happening. Sometimes not. Sometimes it just slams you. But sometimes you, 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 you know when you're starting to get the twinge, okay? And it starts to go out to the right and then down the butt, you know? Um, and then it goes away, okay? So that's something that might be defined as less persistent, okay? So maybe... Maybe, and it's a small area because it's just affecting the buttock, uh, where the sciatic nerve path goes across the buttock, you know. Okay, so maybe if there's a very minimal reflex or motor abnormality, okay, that in general is describing a mild disability, okay? Now, how does it differ from moderate? Well, Moderate is the maximum evaluation for sensory-only impairment. If it's only numbness, tingling, um, um, you know, radiating pain, you know, that sort of thing, if that's the only symptom, okay, you can't get more than moderate. That's the maximum amount. Um, and it might be uh, that it's in a larger nerve distribution. So like the sciatic nerve is a large nerve distribution. And you might having some sensory symptoms, and I have them, goes all the way down into your great toe. You know, at L5S1, goes all the way down to your great toe. That 
that could be a sign consistent with a 20% for the sciatic nerve, a moderate disability, because if it's affecting a large area, okay? Um, other symptoms, you might have significant sensory changes, reflex or motor changes of a low degree, uh, motor or reflex impairment with some weakness or uh, diminished hyperactive re- reflexes, um, graded medically as moderate. Right? So here we're looking at a moderate. Um, now, if your diagnosis is neuritis or neuralgia as opposed to radiculopathy, the maximum evaluation is moderate. Okay? So that, that gets us that far. Now, let's, um, for the sciatic nerve, only the sciatic nerve, there is an evaluation for moderately severe. That's 40%. Um, this is um, the maximum evaluation for a sciatic neuritis not characterized by organic changes. Well, that takes a whole other explanation. But there are motor and reflex impairment, weakness, uh, diminished or hyperactive reflexes of a grade reflecting a high level of limitation or disability. Atrophy may be present. Okay. So there is some of the criteria for moderately severe of the sciatic nerve. And then we have severe. Now, in general, expect motor and or reflex impairment atrophy, weakness, diminished reflexes at a grade reflecting a very high level of limitation or disability. Trophic changes may be seen in long-standing severe cases. Um, marked muscular atrophy of the sci- in the muscles affected by the sciatic nerve. Um, and so... Uh, there is still some room for judgment, and the DBQ prompts the examiner to check a box, mild, moderate, severe, or in the case of sciatic nerve, moderately severe. And that checkbox, now here's an area of confusion by a, by a number of raters, okay? And I had to help a lot of people with this. The, the form is asking for the degree of paralysis. And so the, the, the examiner is responding with the degree of motor impairment, okay? Well, nerve impairments can result not just in motor and sensory impairment, but coordination, endurance, okay? Other um, position sense, okay, that can be significantly disabling um, maybe not quite as obviously measurable, but still disabling and are relevant to the evaluation. And so the rater is told not to rely exclusively on the checkbox chosen by the examiner, but also to look at the entire record and identify what symptoms have been present and not just the exam. And so sometimes you can go back and look through treatment records and you, you see, um, for example, the examiner saying he has a moderate loss uh, 
and he's and at the same time he's saying he's got foot drop. Well, no, <laughs> foot drop the loss of use. Okay, <laughs> that's not that's not moderate. <laughs> that's that's pretty much complete there. <laughs> oh my. Um, now I did hear you ask something about the uh, upper extremity nerves. And it's interesting that the manual says that you will not assign more than one evaluation for nerves of the upper extremity. And, you know, I asked, but I never got an answer. Um, now, wait a minute. You're telling me that if somebody has a radiculopathy affecting the shoulder and the arm, and he also has a bullet wound through the forearm affecting the median nerve, that those aren't separate disabilities? And the answer was no. Right? Can, so I asked for some explanations on that. Can you help me understand that? And they wouldn't give me any. Well, I, I, don't, I, didn't say, I, I won't suggest it was deliberate. I just say I, I didn't get an answer before I retired. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. I hope that um, expands on the understanding. My golly, I so, took up most of the show here. Yeah. We had uh, that, that EMG, EMG versus the clinical, you know, and we just went mm-hmm. to clinical. The um, how's the radio deal with that? Say, say the EMG comes back like sort of normal, and the and the DBQ is, you know, like we talked about mild, moderate, severe, or different variants. If we sure, my, my thought would be maybe to also get it backed up maybe with a physical therapy, muscle strength testing, and oh, things I, like that. I used to. Those physical therapists gave me the best evidence ever because yes. I'm getting grip right. strength in, in yep. pounds, okay? Yep. 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 <laughs> Such yep. precision. Nobody does it as good as they do. And right. I, boy, if I had that, ah, I'd have loved it every time I had it. I'd have, I would have loved it, loved getting it. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. So I order that, I order that sometimes because I, I find the same thing. It's useful. And then that would be, that would help eclipse the Raiders' choice to maybe try and use the EMG as a, is the foundation versus the clinical, right, Bill? Because you said, or right, and and that would uh, help mm-hmm. substantiate the clinical documentation mm-hmm. instead of the EMG. The or mm-hmm. permits it. Mm-hmm. Wow, imaging, <laughs> maybe imaging, maybe imaging. You know, imaging shows the pinched nerve at a certain level, and it correlates with the clinical exam. It correlates with the right. Right, a good explanation of how that was determined would be extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. We do that a lot in our reports, right? We talk about how the imaging correlates with the clinical findings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other thing that's troubling is, you know, that you know, VA is required to evaluate a disability during flare-ups and on use. Okay, so. In order to get an evaluation that is consistent with the severity on flare-ups and use, you have to go in and be examined coincidentally when you're having a flare-up. Now, how often does that happen? <laughs> Not much. Yeah. So um, it helps in the treatment records sometimes. If you get, uh, you know, in the treatment records, you, you see they're having a flare-up and how often it is. And um, VA examiners typically, they're asked right on the form, um, is range of motion more limited, uh, you know, is, is, is there worse during the flare-up? He says yes. 
And he says, well, what would that equate to in range of motion? And he says, I don't know. He's not having a flare-up. And that's the typical answer. And that's what the Raiders got to deal with. Um, very rarely, usually from outside positions, they would, they'll put down an estimate. They'll say it would probably use, lose 10 degrees, an additional 10 degrees during a flare-up. You know? Uh, so that's, that's, um, that's one way we, we are hampered in, in assigning um, the optimal evaluation uh, because examiners won't yep. opine as to what's it going to be when it's bad, you know? Yeah. I try, I try to have the patients, when I do my DTs, tell me what the range would be, show me what the range would be during flare-up, you know? I can use that as a way to measure There's a point of reference, yeah. There's a point of reference, mm-hmm. sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Most of us, most of us remember in the flare-up that your back is frozen, you can't move at all. You know, they, yeah. they can remember yeah. what it feels like, but, you know, it's like a yeah. spasm. Oh, one important mm-hmm. thing, when the, um, of course, uh, Raiders don't actually assign disability evaluations. They plug the values into the computer, and the evaluation builder tells them what the evaluation is. Um, and one good thing about the evaluation builder, uh, when the, if the DBQ has selected two nerves, in different distributions, uh, it'll automatically default into that nerve group, okay? So, uh, like, for example, if we're looking at um, five and six, um, the evaluation builder is going to default to the upper radicular group. And so that'll be a higher evaluation than it would for just the... uh, say, the, the ulnar nerve or the median nerve, yeah, uh, because when you get two nerves passed, the, back, the builder will pick the, will pick the worst, the highest level? Yeah, it automatically defaults to assign the, the higher valuation for the group. You know, you have the upper radicular group, the middle radicular group, and the lower radicular group. And if you hit any two nerves um, on the DBQ, it'll default to one of those groups. Which and, one? Uh, so, the, higher, the most severe one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so that, that was a good part of the, <laughs> of the computer's program. Yeah. Right, <laughs> so right, right, got right. that part good. <laughs> All right. Oh, uh, you want to give your number out, Dr. Bash? Uh, we're, at, we're out of time here. Yep, Dr. Bash, um, you can Google on me, Craig Bash, and find me, or skip my scheduler. He's at 925-381-7561. Once again, skip 925-381-7561. Call him and he can get me in there. Okay, good deal. We just got in. <laughs> hey! <laughs> yeah, that was a good show. You did a good job, Bill. Why, thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks, gentlemen. I hope somebody out there can benefit. I think that's what we're counting on. Yeah, you get some good information here. Your expertise is the rules and regulations and laws, and Dr. Bash's medical expertise. Y'all have a very successful, very successful partnership there. And I really appreciate you guys coming on and 
advancing that partnership and showing that there is help out there for veterans. <laughs> Thanks, <you>, sir. <laughs> we do. Uh, but that's uh, all we have for today, folks. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, we'll have you guys on again real soon. And, Gerald, thanks for being the co-host. Well, that's all right. I appreciate it. That's good. And with that, this will be Jay Basham. We'll be signing off for now. You have been listening to the Basher Hour. The Basher Hour is brought to you by Hadit.com. Stay tuned next week for another edition of the Basher Hour and the Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio Show. Thanks for listening.